Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show podcast for this week, taken from my radio show. Some of the music will be trimmed shorter, but if it is played in full, it is with full permission of the artist. Otherwise, it's trimmed for rights reasons. Please enjoy this podcast, and if you want to catch us live, you can catch us on the Bear.Live every Thursday, 8pm till 10pm UK time. For now, please enjoy this week's show. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Headphones up. This is David Osmond from the Firesign Theater. Whenever I'm kind of wandering around the blogs trying to find something really interesting, I go to the bear and I ask the bear to show me the Dr. Squee Show. It's wonderful. This is Paul Gross and you're listening to The Bear. Thank you kindly. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show. This coming to you on Canada Day. Now, uh, first of all, I will say my guest this week is the wonderful Courtney Gaines, the actor you may know uh, from The Burbs and from Children of the Corn and so many other things. He's a musician as well. Uh, But for me, I will always remember him just by these few words, by these five words, I believe it is. Hey, McFly, I'm cutting in. He's that guy uh, from Back to the Future, my favourite film of all time. So uh, what a pleasure to talk to him. We had a wonderful time. Now, as I say, it is Canada Day. And in that vein, we've got the big question of the week, uh, which we've got a new bumper for. So just give me a sec. It's exciting if I can find a button on my console. And now it's time for the big question of the week. So what's the big question of the week, Squee? Thank you very much, Jem, from Jem's Feel Good Tunes, which you can check out every Saturday on The Bear. Yes, the big question of the week is, if you could celebrate Canada Day in any way, what would it be? Now, the reason uh, why I'm kind of sort of a bit apprehensive of how I, I go about this one is because there's been a bit of controversy this year around Canada Day. Now, we announced this big question of the week before that controversy came to light, or certainly before it came to my um, attention. And the controversy is that uh, some unmarked graves of indigenous people of Canada were found. And um, obviously this kind of talks of the uh, not-so-wonderful past of Canada and the fact that colonialism... Colonialism? God, I'm going to struggle with that word today. Colonization-ism. Colonialism? Anyway... That, that word, which apparently I'm unable to say tonight, uh, has a lot to answer for, obviously. And as a British person, as someone from England, uh, very precisely, I kind of um, feel that uncomfortable past because a lot of these nations are actually affected by what England did back then. And it's kind of one of those things, like, I mean, Canada itself has a uh, large heritage from Scotland. There's a lot of people in Scotland here or there, and uh, so that comes from the UK here. And 
the thing is, as I said to someone, and this will come up in, in some of the answers, the big question of the week exists in this ideal world. So in the world of the big question of the week, this is how would you ideally like to celebrate Can uh, Canada Day? So ideally, we'd live in a world where this hadn't happened, uh, where this awful history of uh, indigenous people being slaughtered and being put in unmarked graves had not happened. Uh, so when you speak of how you'd ideally celebrate Canada Day, it would be in celebration of the best of Canada and uh, in spite of its awful past and in a way that does honour to those people who died as a result. And that's the kind of world in which uh, the big question always lives. And uh, I don't mean this as an excuse. I completely understand why a lot of people aren't celebrating Canada Day for this very reason. However, it's in that vein, the big question of the week uh, goes forward. So we're going to do a few answers uh, and then we're going to go to a few songs and then we can do a few more answers because we've got lots this week. And I would also like to, uh, on this of all days of Canada Day, send out uh, love to the people who were um, affected either by people being harmed or by uh, loss of um, property in their homes uh, in the wildfires which burnt 90% of a heat wave um, riddled village in Canada um, in British Columbia it's a, a town called uh, Lytton and our love goes out to the people of Lytton hope you're well hope you're safe hope most of you at very least uh, made it out so uh, we're sending lots of love over there to Canada for all these myriad of reasons but anyway look here's some answers to the big question of the week so uh, Lewis Mainwaring has put that he would binge watch Canada Day, Canada's Drag Race in celebration of Canada Day nice one like it Robin, Robin Wordingham has put it would be to go and visit the farm my dad grew up on there and visit uh, his sister's and that part of my family. What a wonderful thing. Visiting family, especially long lost over in Canada. That would be a lovely way of spending the day. Chelsea Badger has put lovely. This is the sort of answer which come, came up, I think, as a result of uh, what's come to light this year. So uh, Chelsea Badger has put amplify indigenous voices and share their charities. That is wonderful and ever important. That's the thing. As I say, like, it's perfectly understandable why people aren't celebrating, but... Um, I think the thing we could do to best serve that indigenous community is to listen to them and hopefully in uh, in celebration and hand in hand with them, you know, bring to light their culture as much as possible. Um, Zoe Dingwall's put, eat poutine all day and Rebecca Dunbar would happily join her in that. Diana Gross, meet up with my Jew South friends in Toronto. Now, yes, of course. Uh, I am uh, one third of the Due South by Southeast podcast uh, with Nicola and with Michelle. Uh, Nicola not joining us tonight for the big question of the week. Just a bit tired after work, to be frank. Um, so, yeah, of course, we'd love to hang out with all our Due South friends. And, of course, I just need my ticket and I'd be there. Raven Dane has put, go to New Brunswick and visit my family. And Emily Potast, uh, she's put, she's turning 42 today and finding the answer to the ultimate question. Of course, 42 being the answer to the question of life, the universe and everything. As anyone who is a decent uh, fan of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy will know. We just don't know what the question is. I'm 42 myself, so, you know, I think you have to be like a billion to find out what the question is. Anyway, look, uh, enough of the shenanigans. We're going to go uh, to some more answers from the big question of the week a bit in a little bit. But let's first of all hear some tunes. And I thought, uh, what better way to celebrate uh, Canada Day 
then to bring on some Canada tracks. Um, unfortunately, I don't have anything and or any knowledge of indigenous music to Canada. So instead, I've had to bring out some uh, rock and pop tunes. So we're going to start uh, with a O Canada double bill. So first of all, this is the editors with O Canada. And then we're going to have O Canada from Lily Rose Depp and Harley Quinn from the soundtrack of Yoga Hoses. But let's take it away with the classifieds. <laughs> told this guy where I was from. He said, oh, Canada. Kind of laughs it off. Real funny, huh? The Yoga Hoses soundtrack, uh, which is a wonderful film by Kevin Smith, if you've never seen it, that was Okanda by Lily Rose Depp and Harley Quinn Smith. And we love that one. Uh, so, look, we're going to go back to some more answers for the big question of the week. And as I say, the big question of the week this week is what way would you celebrate uh, Canada Day if you had, if you kind of could celebrate it in any way? And like we've said, we do understand some people choosing not to celebrate in light of recent events. And that actually brings me on to uh, the, a little string of conversation which I had with someone who actually brought this uh, issue to my attention. So, as I said before, I do the Due South by Southeast podcast, which celebrates the show Due South uh, with wonderful Paul Gross in it and uh, amazing show and amazing community. And, and I love them for kind of keeping me informed on things, all things Canadian, good and bad. So it was actually... Emily Dick Dickinson, who uh, told me that a lot of us aren't celebrating this year because of the re recent focus on mass graves of indigenous children who were victims of the residential school system. Now, again, I did not know about this. And I said, look, I feel you. I guess what I like about these fictional questions is they always exist in a better and fairer world than our own. And it's in that respectful, meant spirit that the question is intended but I really appreciate what you're saying. She came back saying, uh, thank you for saying that. I suppose in an ideal situation, I just want to spend the day with my family, enjoy the kids, enjoying the fireworks, which is wonderful. But that sounds lovely. I totally feel for what you're saying too. I am here in England and a land I love, but one with a past of taking from so many other countries that it often feels uneasy. I do believe you can see a play for all its faults and celebrate that too. I do believe you can see a play for all its faults and celebrate it too. I, I think I meant country there. You can see a place, sorry, of course, for its all its faults and celebrate it too, though. Pardon me, uh, autocorrect, I think, might have uh, come to play there. I just wish that we could all get the past uh, unjustified addressed. And uh, Emily's just come back saying, uh, we definitely have a lot to do atone for and to work to make it right. It's not all in the past, though. I see the effects every day in my work. As I replied there, very true. I wouldn't suggest it's in the, I shouldn't suggest it's in the past. Uh, again, Emily schooled me a bit. It's understandable. We tend to think in those terms. And I'm so glad we can talk openly about it here, though, 
Frasier would approve, I'm sure. Frasier being Benton Frasier, the title, uh, the main character from G South. Uh, Karen Ellery's joined us in and put important point. Then, if I could exclude my ideal, execute my ideal Canada Day experience, it would be to volunteer in a way to serve the Indigenous community, perhaps to host a fundraising raising event for the MMIW. Now, I had not heard of MMIW. It turns out this is the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Charity. Um, I just put, it's the best way to make progress, actually, feel like you can talk about the problem, very Benny. And again, this is what I believe in. I, I understand why we might not celebrate this day today, or some people may choose not to. But I guess kind of like stifling conversation for me doesn't move things forward. There's a friend of mine from America who's a Native American. And uh, when we were talking about the mascot of the Redskins being taken away, the cartoon of an Indian, um, which is used by the, the baseball team, he put forward that he was actually upset because a an image of Indians is being taken away, even if it's an offensive image, for that to then be replaced by something which is not representing Indians, as opposed to then using a more respectful symbol, they're just taking away the symbol, which is a really interesting thing, which I'd never think about. So I do love these questions. I love getting us thinking. I Look, I know this is a, a, a fun, light-hearted radio show. But it's really good to talk about these things and to address them. One of my favourite uh, TV shows is The Last Leg, which is a show over here which is hosted by um, two out of the three hosts are disabled and they talk about disabled issues a lot as well as current affairs and news and um, the Paralympics they always cover on that. And it's a really great show, but they address things which they say, is it okay? Is it okay to talk about this? Is it okay that this happened this week? And that's what I like to do on this show as well. I like to address things and talk about them. We can still have a laugh, still have a good time. But, you know, it's all right to talk about how maybe uh, we feel uneasy about certain subjects. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about them. And I think that's wonderful. I, I, I love the fact uh, that both Karen and Emily, Emily, sorry, have uh, felt they could talk to me about it and, and educate me on things which I know nothing about. But moving forward with the answers, Ben Montgomery, uh, my good friend, has put my first Timbits. Oh, so he's going to try Timbits for the first time. Nice, nice choice uh, for Canada Day. Alana Stewart, uh, fireworks with my family, no bugs. Well, that would be in, in the ideal world. You see, in the real world, we can't get rid of bugs. In the ideal world, they'll just be off safely somewhere else. John Wright, a bucket of poutine, a picture of Tim Hortons, and a binge watch of Due South. Eh? Nice answer. And uh, yeah, bucket of Tim Hortons. I take it that's a bucket of coffee. You haven't just got a bucket full of donuts. Actually, I would put a pitcher full of donuts, sorry, I should say. If it was a bucket, it would make more sense to have donuts in. Pitcher of donuts, though. Do you, do you pour the donuts into a glass? I don't know. Uh, oh, we've got some uh, more prize here. So, Emily um, has actually fired back on. John said, uh, only advisable if you live in a country with socialised healthcare. <laughs> yeah, that much Tim Hortons coffee might be bad for you. Christina Tina Mustensen has also put to John, the Jew South I can agree on, but sorry, my Canadian friends, soggy fries and cheese curds and gravy is a no for me. And Tim Hortons, well, if there's no other coffee near place nearby, a cup of maple coffee, though that's nice. <laughs> I don't know, cup of maple maple coffee doesn't sound bad to me. Um, so. Uh, Oh, lots, lots of back and forth there on the poutine and coffee idea. Uh, Claudia Chang has put, 
I like the idea of fundraising event. I would bring some butter chicken poutine. Nice. And fundraising, again, what a wonderful idea to reclaim this day to celebrate the charities of the indigenous people. Mel Walker, will you accept an answer from a natural Canadian? Well, yeah, okay, I suppose, Mel, if you, if you insist. Since I'm not leaving my house to participate in any festivities this year, I would like to share one of my favourite ways to celebrate Canada Day from my childhood. And what could be better and more innocent than that? That's great. She's put, and that would be going up to the dirt road behind my parents' house to the point... Have a small campfire on the shore, roast marshmallows and hot dogs, and then watch the fireworks set off by the community across the water. It was like we had our own private view of the light show. Oh God, that's something I love as well, because uh, I grew up in the centre of town. It's not quite the same, or quite as idyllic, but uh, it was right in this little market town called Romsey, uh, where my dad had a shop and we lived above it. And... Uh, We'd have kind of things like the, um, they'd have a festival each year and you'd have the um, carnival parade come through and you have the Christmas light ceremony and we could watch it all from our front room. We just looked out the window and just enjoyed it. Uh, something magical for me about that was just that was just these, these things would come to my doorstep, which was lovely. Victoria Hart has put, I would love to spend the day going horseback riding and exploring Alberta's terrain home to thousands of dinosaur fossils, with Paul Gross, of course. Paul Gross, again, from G South. And uh, he did that little bumper for us, which you heard earlier. He actually, like, the, the reason why it kind of cuts off and has the uh, the guy going, the bear, is because uh, he recorded it for our other show, G South by Southeast, and I kind of repurposed it for this. But I'm sure Paul would appreciate and uh, be behind that. Guys, thank you very much for your answer to the big question of the week. Uh, I hope I explained uh, well enough why we chose to keep that question and why it is in complete celebration of the indigenous people of Canada. Hopefully justice, uh, whatever justice can be sought after all this time will be done. So we're going to go to a couple more tunes before I interview with Courtney Gaines. And uh, when we go out of the interview with Courtney Gaines, we've got a couple of his tracks, both, both uh, as a solo artist and part of the band he's in. But right now we're going to go for a, uh, a Bare Naked Ladies double bill. Now, if you listen to the show regularly, you will know I am a huge fan of the Bare Naked Ladies. Their new album, Detour de Force, is out um, uh, near the end of this month, actually. Now we're in uh, July. Very much looking forward to that. But we thought for, or I thought for Canada Day, what would be better than uh, a track of theirs which speaks about Canada? And after that, we're going to have very rare uh, deep cuts from their live show, or one of their live shows. And that's their version of Careless Whisper back from when Steve Page was in the band. Uh, for anyone who knows, you'll know that Steve Page was part of the band for many years before he left, and uh, now it's just Ed Robinson as the lead singer with the other guys. The first track we're going to hear is High and Canada Dry by the Bare Naked Ladies, one of my favourite. Please enjoy it and enjoy my interview with Courtney Gaines from earlier this week. Shining like Aurora Borealis, like Sid sipping from the Stanley Chalice. No, I'm never gonna dance again the way I dance with you. My guest tonight, uh, you may know him from such films as Trill McCorn. The Burbs. Uh, you might know him from working on such TV shows as ER and Seinfeld. 
Uh, you may know some of the actors he's worked with, such as, oh God, Tom Hanks and George Clooney. But I can call an image of him to mind very easily with just five words. And that's quite convenient because his video is not working at the moment. But all I have to say to you is, hey, McFly, I'm cutting in. And you will instantly know I'm going to be sp speaking with Courtney Gaines. Welcome to the Dr. Squeeze Show, sir. <laughs> uh, you there? Not so bad. How are you doing? Other than uh, awful weather, it sounds like, which has knocked out your video. Yeah, I mean, we've had bad rains here and my uh, my Wi-Fi and my computer's outside. So doing it on the phone and it's for some reason it won't give me a video as well so we just have audio we'll have to make it work with what we got eh no problem luckily like i swear i didn't like anyone who's watching this who's watched the show before will know i'm not slick enough to have prepared that intro knowing that your video wasn't going to work but it's a kind of a happy accident right there there you go there you go <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one thing which I was absolutely fascinated at, um, actually, no, no, let, let's not put hospital before cut. Let, let's start off with this. So as well as your amazing acting career, you've also got a music career and you're celebrating 30 years in the business as well as uh, over 100 credits, 130 credits, is it on IMDb? That's correct, yeah. So was it the music or the acting which drew you in first and how did you get going in, on it all? Um, the... the uh, I knew about wanting to be an actor probably by the age I was 10. So I guess that was first. Um, I started taking lessons in music and in acting at the same age, around 13 years old. But uh, the acting, of course, is the one that took off and had more support managers and agents and all those things. But music's always been there on the side. And I've done a few, you know, put out a few records here and there, but re recently I just decided like, I'm not, you know, going to get a record deal probably. So it's just, there's so many things you can do independently now. So I've got two projects going. One is a band called Ripple Street. And we're putting out our second uh, EP right now. Our last, our single we just put out is called Would You. And it's very like Black Sabbath-esque kind of heavy stuff. And I also have a solo record I'm putting out called Acoustic Games. And our second single called Cherish is coming out uh, tomorrow. And it's much more mellow, very acoustic-driven stuff. So that's what's going on with the music. Um, but yeah, they, they made my made my living as an actor, <laughs> which is which is you know, I love them both. So very, but they're very different to me. One's way more music's a little more personal. Acting is uh, you're taking somebody else's words and bringing it to life, right? Before we go into the acting side of it, you've just just dropped that you've got the uh, music coming out. Where can people listen to that? Uh, you can get it. You can check me out at Courtney Gaines on Spotify. And again, the, uh, the record's called Acoustic Gains and uh, Ripple Street. You can also check on Spotify and then all of them are available on, you know, Apple, iTunes, Deezer, all of that for purchase. Brilliant. And uh, Children of Corn was one of your first film projects. Is this correct? That was, that was the first. Yeah. The first. I mean, uh, just what was it like stepping into that? Uh, you know, we all know what a classic it is now, but I can imagine it's one of those ones which in the script you have to have the, the vision to see it. Uh, how did it kind of first strike you when you looked into that? Well, so Linda Francis, the casting director, was one of the first people to take a shine to my work. And she had tried to get me a couple. Matter of fact, I'd been cast in another movie that, that she had done that then ended up getting canceled for some reason. So she was she was the the person that was championing me to get work and break into the business. So I, I owe a lot to her. But I saw I started to go in an audition and uh, I'd been studying in a professional adult workshop for for five years. And, and uh, everybody kept saying, you know, when you turn 18, you're going to start working because back then 
there was emancipation laws where if you were underage, you couldn't work a full eight hour day. So as teen cinema was blowing up, the idea of being 18 and looking younger was a, was a huge advantage. And then to have five years of really good training by a professional working actor was also a guy named Virgil Fry was also a big advantage. And, uh, you know, I was, I was hungry. A lot of people in the class had already been breaking out and working. And I, I really felt like, uh, you know, I, I could do it and I wanted to prove I could do it. So I, I came into that audition with a big chip on my shoulder and, and it was a role I could sink my teeth into anger was and intensity was something I could, I could definitely get to emotionally. And so, uh, I, I was definitely fired up to get that role. And, uh, I, I, I did so. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those ones which is like, you know, just a lot of the action, obviously, as the title might suggest, is set in the corn. Uh, was it just long days out in the cornfields or is it more kind of set up than, than we might imagine from the film? Well, there, there was the cornfield. The first thing, their first challenge was to find uh, good corn. Normally, Nebraska is where the corn is in the, in the Midwest in America. But for some reason that year, it, 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 uh, I, I don't know if they'd had a frost or something, so it wasn't that good. So it ended up being in Iowa that they were able to find a, a good cornfield uh, to use. Um, and then there was these, these really small towns as well. Uh, like this one town we shot in, uh, the, the main town was a town called Whiting. Uh, I think they had a high school graduating class of like 16 kids. That's how small it was. So... Coming from Los Angeles, having grown up in Los Angeles, it was definitely uh, a bit of a culture shock to, to go to <laughs> small town Iowa, but in a good way, you know, in a really good way. People were much less uh, precocious. You know, L.A. is <laughs> L.A. Yeah. is full of every it's not a looking good going on in L.A. You know, everybody's got to have a nice car and everybody's talking themselves up. And in, in Iowa, you know, everybody's wearing T-shirts and jeans. You know, it's very laid back. And uh, was it like, you know, because back then, the other thing is, uh, we we like now hear from actors complaining about long days on set and, oh, God, they've got to wait for stuff to get set up. Then we did not have our iPods. Then we did not have all the kind of myriad of ways to entertain ourselves. What was it like on the long days filming something like that when you didn't have those things? Like, what was the set like? Well, you're right. I mean, it is, but we, yeah, we didn't know better. Right. So we didn't have anything to compare it to, uh, you know, you just, yeah, you find ways to entertain yourself. I always often bring a guitar to set, which I'm sure I did. So I played a lot of guitar. I always felt like my chops would get better when I was on movies. Cause I would just sit in my trailer and play a guitar waiting for them to, to call me in, you know? Um, but I don't remember feeling like the days were long. It was my first film, but I felt like I was working when I was on set, I was working. So if you're work when you're working, it doesn't feel bad. It's when you're waiting around to work. Like the worst is if you get called in at like 6 a.m. Because the, the typical times of shooting are 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. if you're shooting nights, right? You basically shoot till dawn. Yeah. Um, if you get called in at like 6 a.m. to work and then you don't work till like 5 p.m., that's annoying. Like you hate when they do that to you. You yeah. sit around 10, 11 hours doing nothing. Sometimes you, you're there all day and they come and say, sorry, we're not going to use you today. So you've been there 10, 11, almost 12 hours and you didn't work. That's when it that's when it sucks. Uh, the other foot, like I'm just going to kind of skip ahead in your credits, yep. but there's one. I, I love an interestingly named credit, which I've never heard of. And not only is it a great name of the film, but, but the, your name of your character in this, it's lost in the dust and you're a red dick barker. Tell us there a bit about that. It's funny. I was just talking in my last interview about Lust in the Dust. They were saying movies that people hadn't seen that that you might think were good. And that was one I cited, Lust in the Dust. It was a, it was a film with Divine. And uh, 
Tab Hunter, Cesar Romero, Lainey Kazan, Jeffrey wow. Lewis, all these amazing veteran actors. It was my, my third film. And uh, it was funny, the casting directors, uh, I didn't really know much about Divine. I knew I'd heard of polyester, but I was, you know, I was, I was a young guy. I didn't know anything. And they were, they were just like, if you have any problems, the first assistant director straight. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and then the first day I got on set, I saw Divine, you know, dressed in the full on drag, uh, sitting in a back of a truck, looking like she's supposed to be on a horse with a whip going, yeah, yeah. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into here? You know, but Divine was absolutely great to work with, total pro and uh, uh, and, and getting to watch. I stayed another two weeks. We, we shot it in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a beautiful area that I'd never been to. And, uh, but I stayed another two weeks just to watch all these veteran actors work because I mean, you know, Cesar Romero was, you know, yeah. Joker and Batman. And I was, I was a huge fan. And, to get to watch these veterans work for me, it's like I said, it's my third film. I, I learned a lot. Wow, look, I, I, I must admit, I wasn't expecting a Cesar Romero story out. That that will do very nicely, sir. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just see some of these credits. I love the title, Lost in the Dust. Like that could be anything. Yes, uh, they're very funny Western comedy. Very funny, it's worth, it's worth, it's definitely worth a watch. Especially if you're divine, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. Uh, I have to, of course. I would not be a child of the 80s if I didn't ask about Back to the Future. Uh, now, just to even kind of get a kind of small part in a film like that, what's it like stepping into that set and stepping into that world just, just for a few days? Well, so it's an interesting story. So the, the first thing that made it easier, I didn't, you know, I didn't know how big the movie was going to be. No one knew who Robert Zemeckis was really as a director yet. We knew Spielberg was involved, but that's all we knew. Um, but uh, um, Crispin Glover and I had our, the first thing I ever, ever did was a movie for the American Film Institute, uh, it's uh, it's now out. It's called the Beaver Trilogy because they've made this same movie three times. One time with Sean Penn and one time with Crispin Glover. Um, and and, and this, the, I have to tell this story because it's just so crazy. So the first thing I ever do, I come in and the guy's like, OK, so you're just smoking in the boys room. Let's rehearse. And then the bathroom stall opens and it's Crispin Glover dressed in that black outfit that Olivia Newton-John wore. And uh, <laughs> Right. With the wig and everything. And it's Crispin Glover. He's like, oh, hey, hey, guys, how's it going? And I'm just like, this is insane. But this actor is amazing. Who is this? <laughs> so we, you know, we hit it off. And, and so to, to go on to that set, you know, to actually know one of the lead actors. And he came right to my trailer and said hello and stuff made it, you know, made it much easier. You know, it's always nice when you know somebody. Um, so so in that way, I felt yeah, hey, I'm working with a guy I've worked with before and we're going to be good. Um, but the most interesting thing that happened was, so the story is, you know, Eric Stoltz was originally cast as Marty and uh, they after like five weeks in, they let him, they let him go and brought in Michael J. Fox and completely reshot the movie. So yeah, it was so totally unheard of. They, they'd filmed kind of quite a good chunk of the movie, yes. uh, but they had this agreement uh, that they bring in Michael J. Fox if it didn't work. Over a third of it, yeah. So it yeah. was it was a big deal, and um, 
so legally how it works with an actor is they, they, they have a thing called a drop pickup. So if you work and then you're not going to work for a week, instead of having to pay you for every day, they can drop pick you up and then pick you up again at the end of the week. Now, they can only do that once. And they had already done that with me when that whole thing happened. So I ended up getting paid for another five weeks where they reshot everything. When they figured it out, they flipped a lid, but there was really nothing they could do about it. So, um, so for a, a role that I was probably supposed to do three, four, or five days on over a, a length of period of time, I ended up getting paid for like five, six weeks. And obviously, it's gone on to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, trilogy of all time. And it plays on TV constantly still to this day. So, you know, I get residual checks for all of that. So it's it's been one of the big blessings of my career, to be honest. And, and what a fantastic kind of role to have. You, you're basically the second baddie. You're the guy who kind of tries to steal lane from our hero, George, uh, back in the past. That's true. It is for a little role. It does have a big impact. It is an important moment in the film uh, for him to kiss, kiss his wife to be. So, yeah, it, 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 it has, you know, if you have a small role, but it's in a, a place of, of importance, it, it certainly can be memorable. Uh, I mean, literally, I, yeah. Yeah, like all I have to hear is, hey, McFly, I'm coming in and I'm picturing your face like that. That's that's for a lot of people of my generation. And, and, and people, yeah, people do use that quote, which is amazing. I'm sure there's plenty of other quotes from that movie that are used. But uh, yeah, and I, when I sign you know, conventions and things, that's, uh, of course, what they want me to sign on the, on the photos. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing when, you know, even something small, they'll remember a quote. If the quote's good and you do a good job with it, they'll remember it, you know. Do you still get stopped in the street for that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, sure, of course. Fantastic, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just quite in awe of that, but um, we will move on. Uh, so 21 Jump Street as well, you pop up in. Yeah. In the yeah, TV that show. Was, that was shot up in Vancouver. That was that was when Canada started doing the uh, tax incentives, you know, where they gave money back per dollar, 30 cents per dollar. And so much was being shot up in Vancouver. I remember we went to the hotel and. I saw more actors in, in that hotel than I would see in LA. You know, it was like so much production was being done up there. Um, but yeah, that was that was a good experience. First time I'd ever been to Vancouver. It's a lo lovely city. And getting to work with Johnny Depp before he became huge. Cool dude. Very cool dude. And Peter yeah. Delaweese, who was the other lead in it. Uh, I had done a, I'd done a movie uh, with before that called Winners Take All. So... Again, always nice to know somebody on set. As a matter of fact, I think I stayed a few more days and stayed at his, his place because uh, I just like I thought Vancouver was a really nice city, so I wanted to check it out for a while. And I think uh, the Deloises get kind of um, forgotten in the acting legacies of Hollywood. They, they, oh, they absolutely! Yeah, he comes from you know uh, Hollywood royalty, as it were, with his father, and he's he's gone on to become a director. Uh, he does mainly directs in Canada. But I worked for him once on, uh, what was that show? Oh, oh, I'll think of it in a minute. It was a, it was a detective show. Uh, played like a couple long-haired computer hacker nerd types of guys. And he directed us in that. So uh, what was that show called? Uh, it'll come to me. But yes, this so is the problem. Be, be a director and the uh, actor I worked with, Dan Bell, in it's gone on to become a huge commercial casting director in Los Angeles. You just never know where people end up 20, 20, 30 years later. I mean, this is the problem where you've done like a million credits, like you've forgotten more TV shows than uh, most <laughs> actors could hope to be in. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's true. Sometimes I, 
I forget things. Uh, it'll come to me. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, six degrees of separation, right? I think, you know, they talk about six degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon. I think he could pr- do a pretty good job of doing that with me as well. Yeah, it's true enough. It's true enough. I mean, I, I never thought that I would have one, let alone two of the cast of Hell Kitty on my show. Who was and, the other? Uh, I've had Billy Burst Jr. on before. Ah, yes. And he, he and I did another movie, uh, uh, uh called, uh, Death Camp. Uh, he's done, uh, he does a lot, a lot of horror. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah. I, I know him. I know him a little bit and see him at conventions. If there was anyone, like you know, it's, it's it, I'd have to look far and wide to to meet someone who's done uh, more acting jobs than you. But Bill's like got over two hundred. Yeah, no, he works constantly. Crazy, like, and actually, the, the one of the people who, who crops up in Hell Kitty as well is uh, Doug Jones, who was another yeah. one of these kind of actors, and now very big for Star Trek, of course, in Discovery. But uh, he he made his kind of um, bread and butter doing all those kind of horror films. Well, Hellraiser. Yeah. He's, he's, he's pinhead and Hellraiser. So yeah, no, I, I know him a bit. My, my manager, uh, also, we also do conventions and Doug is one of the, there's several people uh, in that Hell's Kitty uh, that are clients of my managers. That's how I, that's how I and John Franklin got on that project. A couple of the others had done it before Adrian Barbeau and, and he gotten good feedback and said, Hey, I think you guys should do this. And, I, when I first read it, there wasn't a lot that my character did. It was mainly John's character, and I was just, I was just like, well, I, I think he has, you know, he's, if you make him a little more resistant, I mean, Malachi is not an agreeable person. And I said, maybe uh, I don't know, you know, I do music, maybe let me write a song. And he's like, okay, well, let me hear it. And so I wrote the song called "I Hate Cats," and uh, that made that made it. So we, so he, he beefed up my role, and I said, okay, so we, we did it, and it was, it was fun. Nice and a good opportunity to get your music in there. Yeah, you know, you know, if I can find a way, I do, you know, if it's appropriate, you know. Uh, it's <laughs> oh, I love actors. It's always fun <laughs> to see if you can write a song, too. Like, so it's not just like, you know, some song I wrote that fits. But, uh, you know, from the point of view of sort of Malachi and the whole, this whole premise of Hell Kitty is this, this possessed cat or whatever. And him writing, he picks up a guitar at this guy's house and just starts playing the song called I Hate Cats. You know, I thought it was kind of, yeah, it came out pretty funny. So... See, this is what a good actor does. You take any every part of the beast uh, to to put into your performance that you can. Yeah, if you can come up with an idea that works, like I said, I just I felt the character just needed to be beefed up a little bit. If you're going to bring you know Malachi back in some way, you know I don't think he should be passive because that's not what he was. So another one which I just want to pick up on, just because uh, I'm a lover of all things superheroes. So uh, you popped up in an episode of uh, Superboy. Oh my God, Superboy! Yeah, no one ever talks about that. Uh, oh please i got to shoot that in um orlando florida which is where disney world is and that was the biggest perk is i got to get a a vip tour of disney world so i got to you know go through disney world in like you know an hour and a half i just got to cut through all the lines and do all the rides so that that was a nice vip perk um but you know that was a uh you know, not a, it was a pretty low quality show as it were. And I didn't think anyone would probably see it. Um, I was shooting the, uh, I was shooting the birds at the time and I was in between again, a drop pickup of when I was going to have to go back. So I got offered it and I, I'm like, sure, I'll go do it. And thought, oh, nobody will see this. And then I remember when I got back to work on the birds, the first thing I heard was Tom Hanks going, Hey, I saw you on Superboy with my kids. And then, and then Joe Doc, the director, Hey, I saw you on Superboy. <laughs> So you just never know who's watching. That's what I learned. Oh, and look, since you brought it up, I, I was going to go there. Uh, the Burbs. Uh, the 
one of the funniest films of the 80s and Tom Hanks when he's at his height of his comedy genius like not that he hasn't gone gone to maybe a thing or two since then but like that for me was was where most of us to kind of discover Hank was in these fantastic funny comedies of the 80s what was it like to to be there uh, with that guy uh, at that time well, so, yeah, um, that is when he was doing comedy. You're right, he doesn't do uh, much comedy anymore. He's one of the few guys to go from being a big comedy star to making a transition into into drama, which I think has really elongated his career. Um, so so the, the thing about that movie that was interesting that I didn't completely appreciate at the time is there was a, a writer's strike in Hollywood at that time. And there was no work, but I had been just working consistently. So I just sort of took it for granted that, I, that there was work. You know, now that I'm older, I realized how lucky I was. It was literally us and Fletch 2 were the only two projects being shot on the entire Universal lot. Wow. It was like a ghost town, right? And, uh, and we shot nothing but nights and we shot in this famous cul-de-sac on the universal studios tours they you know give that 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 they talk about that's where the monsters was shot desperate housewives was shot like so many things have been shot on this cul-de-sac so i'm i'm proud to be one of the projects that's that's a part of that that uh, universal history but yeah we shot nothing but nights and we shot in los angeles and that really made it difficult because you would get calls and get woke up and try to do things and uh, as opposed to if you were on location in a hotel, you would just sleep in the day and work at night, you know. So I always say that's like about two months sleep that I, I never got back in my life. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, my my uh, good buddy Matt Lees was reminding me, uh, who, by the way, does a wonderful theme tune here on the Dr. Squeeze show. So thank you very much for that, Matt. Uh, he was reminding me of that wonderful uh, scene near the end where Bruce Dern's just chasing you across the lawn. Uh, one of the funniest film, uh, funniest scenes. Well, yeah, one of the funniest lines, right? Hey, Pinocchio, where are you going? Which that <laughs> yes. is all something I sign in my convention things, depending on. There's basically two. There's two burbs, burbs camps. Hey, Pinocchio, where are you going? And sardines. I don't know what it means about an individual, but those are the two lines that are the ones that people uh, gravitate toward. Um, but yeah, so so back to what was it like to work with Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks is the most grounded A-list actor you're you're ever gonna meet. He, you know, he's he's a guy who you know has, has been able to keep it real, as they say. He's very Americana. He would like to sit there in his chair on set, listening, smoking his maybe smoking a sogi, listening to the radio of a baseball game. That's that's Tom Hanks, and uh, just just a really accessible and nice guy. And then you just talked about Bruce Dern and um, Bruce Dern. You know, the first scene that we did where I come out to the mailbox and stuff and get all scared sort of by them looking all at me. He right from that point on he came up to me and, and sort of took me under his wing and just really acknowledged the work i was doing and and i was a big bruce dern fan and still am and so that meant a lot to me and uh, he gave me some really really excellent advice business wise and career career wise and i wish i had been smart enough to keep him as a mentor through my career and got more advice but i didn't but recently uh, i did a movie called hellblazers uh, for a director named Justin Lee. It was like the third project I've done for him. And when I heard Bruce Dern was going to be on it, I, I, I jumped on it because I wanted to get a chance to see him again and, and thank him for, for, uh, for taking the time, you know, to, 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 to help this young actor who was trying to figure out what he was doing. So, uh, 
and he's so smart, so quick-witted, that guy. Such a good actor. Uh, we've actually got a question from uh, Mr. Lee's himself. I, I invoked him, obviously, by mentioning his name there. He's put, was the slip in the final scene planned or genuine by, when you both went flying? Uh, the, sli the slip was planned, and the actual slip you see of me is actually a stunt guy, which is kind of funny, but just a big-budget movie. They, they're careful. I've done so many worse and crazier things in my career than taking that fall, but that was actually a stunt guy, and the guy that he could tackle was a stunt guy. But, yeah, it was totally planned. I've got to say, though, sir, I mean, like to go into a film with Bruce Dern and with uh, Mr. Tom Hanks and to kind of uh, give a performance that people remember so fondly of yours there. Uh, that's no mean feat, sir. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. And don't forget, I got to work with, you know, Carrie Fisher as well. I've worked with, uh, you know, uh, uh, I've worked with her and I've also, uh, uh, I'm trying to think, I, I could do the trifecta of Star Wars. I, I've worked with her, him, and I, I've worked Who's the lead guy? Mark Hamill. I worked with Mark Hamill. Okay. That's like, I just need one more to do the trifecta of Star Wars. That's my, that's my <laughs> I like it. So, like, is there kind of a uh, a moment where you have to kind of center yourself to stop yourself from getting starstruck when you're in the presence of these kind of uh, these icons? Even back then, like Tom Hanks was particularly well known, and Bruce well, Dern. Well, not only that, that when we were shooting that movie is when Big came out. So he that was when he went from star to superstar you know what i mean that was like it went a whole nother notch you know a whole nother level after big came out big was just a huge movie at that time so that was interesting to sort of watch that happen and see him you know sort of contemplating that dealing with that you know but he handled it with with total grace um it, in that particular movie it was a challenge because my character was supposed to be you know this foreign guy from a somewhere slavic european and didn't know anybody and everywhere i looked was someone that i was in my childhood you know what i mean so many like, people i grew up with in my teenage so I, I had to really shake that off you know then i'm like i'm looking at carrie fisher no 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 i'm not looking at guy i'm looking at tom x no i'm not I'm looking at brewster no no i'm not looking at brewster <laughs> you know and and, and and including henry gibbons who played our who played uh you know the lead the lead bad guy in our project. I mean, Henry Gibbons, you know, been on everything from laughing to the blues brothers. I mean, I literally grew up watching him. So, and he was a sweetheart, great guy. Uh, but yeah, so it was, it was, you know, there was many, many people on that movie that were just established, you know, you raise a good point. Usually on some cast, you could at least look away from kind of the most famous guy on set to someone else, but everyone on that set was the most famous guy. Yeah, they were all recognizable. That's for sure. All, all like I said, all people I I had seen before I ever, you know, was working professionally myself. Brilliant. Uh, next one, like I want to talk about. Uh, it's another one of these ones we mentioned Back to the Future before. Which obviously, kind of those wonderful period sets which you get for the fifties. Uh, Memphis Bell, uh, another kind of uh, great period piece. Oh yeah, and I, I loved. I I really do love doing period pieces, and I certainly like doing war projects i've been fortunate to do civil war movies i've also done westerns and i love that i love that it's it's so yeah memphis bell i mean it's probably the biggest you know the classiest project you know i've ever was involved in and all the other actors when i run into them we all say the same that we've been chasing that movie or that experience again you know that we, it was it's pretty much the biggest experience any of us had you know um it we shot it in the UK first off. So uh, 
and we got to shoot at famous pinewood studios so that was an amazing thing and five of the major crew were oscar award-winning uh uh people uh stuart craig uh, for set dressing who our, our production design who's pretty much every big movie i see out of the uk still has his name on it i mean he's a one of the biggest production designers you know ever and uh uh david watkins was the dp who had won an oscar for out of africa um and and then david putnam himself as a producer for chariots of fire and so it's just like you know just <laughs> top notch people you know and uh and this the 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 Memphis bell itself was made in five pieces that could connect together. That was so well done that it ended up being put in a museum. I mean, we got to actually fly in a B 17 on 4th of July, ironically, which was rather interesting. Wow. Wasn't being celebrated in the UK, obviously. So that was interesting. Um, yeah. 4th of July or, or Tuesdays. It's known around these parts, but I get it. It's a big, <laughs> yes. big thing for you guys. <laughs> yes. So that was interesting, though, to be in another country. You're like, wow, this doesn't exist here, does it? But to then get to go up in a B-17 on that day is a, is a, an unforgettable experience, you know, an amazing, an amazing experience. But yeah, just everything about that movie was just top notch. And then to be, you know, loosely playing real people as well. My, the character that I loosely played, his real name is a Kashmir Ka Nastal. He's no longer with us. But we all got to you know talk to them on the phones and everything before we we did it, and then they flew. Uh, I think it was eight out of nine uh, or eight out of ten flew out and to meet us all, and um, we had a you know a party in their honor, and you know Harry Connick gets on piano and they're dancing with their wives, and you know it was just bigger than a movie, and there was something about those guys getting together. You could see it, you know, either they were you know old men at this point. But they had a sparkle in their eye when they got together because they, you know, they literally beat the jaws of death, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I it just... was it was for the average is four four runs and you get knocked out of the sky. And these guys did 25. I think they even went further than that. And my particular character, him and his brother both went in underage. They had lost their parents and their sister vouched for them. One went in at 16 and one went in at 17. One flew 50 missions and the other flew 55. I don't think there's a thing about it in the Guinness Book of Records, but I bet it's the record. I bet for two brothers, 105 missions, I I, I bet has to be the record. Those guys were blessed. I mean, the odds of them surviving is like a million to one. I just can't imagine like the, the congruence of like amazing things in that moment. So you're surrounded by these people who are the real deal. Like they've done what you grew up pretending to do on the playground, kind of like uh, pretending to be a fighter pilot. You've got Harry Connick Jr. For God's sakes, again, at the pinnacle of his, um, his original well, he was, kind of thing. He was, he was relatively thing. unknown at that point. He, while he was doing that movie, he was, he was talking about, yeah, I did the soundtrack for this movie called Harry McSally and, I hope it's going to be good. And then the movie blew up and he was freaking out because his manager, his music manager was like, we got to get you home. We got to get you on tour. You know, this is, this, and, and, and he finally he got to go. And when he did, he just literally was on tour for like two years after that. <laughs> you know? Amazing. So he's, he's another one. I kind of watched go from star to superstar uh, right before my eyes. Um, 
but you know, at the time, I mean, it was that was the movie for a teenage actor to get. Literally that that year, that was. The, I mean, everybody wanted that movie, and uh, you know, they luckily picked me to be part of that ensemble. And that was my big pitch when I came in. Was I'd been in a very good ensemble theater company in Los Angeles called the Friends and Artists Theater Ensemble, and we was a very celebrated theater. And that was my approach. I came in and, and I said, you know, ensemble's my forte. I'm in one of the best ensemble companies in Los Angeles. And we just did one of the most difficult ensemble plays uh, called uh, Bomb and Gilead that we just won a bunch of uh, awards for. And uh, the director said that that really left an impression because he said that uh, all anybody wanted, you know, all the actors in L.A. just wanted to know what was in it for them. And so that was very refreshing. Uh, he said, and then he was looking at tapes for different people. And Patrick Dempsey's reel was one of them that he, he had looked at. And my scene in Can't Buy Me Love, where I, you know, throw him against the arcade and the famous quote, you shit on my house. He saw <laughs> that scene and he said that scene and that conversation would ice me getting the job. So thank you, Patrick, for having my, me on your reel. <laughs> you, you see, you've just got such an embarrassment of riches. I forgot you were pinned up against the wall by, by McSteamy or McDreamy or whichever one of those he is. Yes, yes, yeah, he's McDreamy. But that's funny. Too. Dreamy, I, I really do six degrees of separation. McSteamy is an actor I helped train. So <laughs> when he was young, I didn't even recognize him. He looked so different as an adult. But I, I, he's, he was an actor in San Francisco that I actually coached. So, so. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. Anyone else? I think they would make it up, but I can see it all on your credits. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I, talk, I, you know, I had a few actors that I trained that that broke out to be much bigger than me. Him being one of them. Another one was uh, Alicia Silverstone. So she's, oh, wow. she, she's done quite good for herself. Uh, speak about growing up in the uh, the 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah, she may have been a teeny bit of a crush of mine uh, when I was growing up. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, getting back to you, sir, though, um, Seinfeld, I, I realize you're in there as a clerk. It may have been a small role, but come on now. Again, one of those kind of iconic shows. No, it's, it's, are you kidding? It's one of the greatest comedies in the history of television, right? I mean, to, to even have done anything to be, a, to have been part of that is, is a, uh, is, is, is a badge of honor for sure. Uh, a couple of things I would like to say about that were number one, uh, I saw when I was in the makeup, tra uh, makeup, uh, I saw a bunch of, Porsches, pictures of Porsches in the wall. I'm like, oh, my Porsche Speedsters are my favorite cars, though I don't own one. I wish I could afford one. Uh, uh, they were like, Jerry Seinfeld, you know, is a huge Porsche guy. I'm like, oh. So I started talking to him and I, and I told him about, uh, you know, that Speedsters are, you know, my favorite. Next day, you know, come to set and he's like, hey, come outside. I want to show you something. And he had this beautiful Speedster that he, he went out of his way to go get because he, you know, he has a garage where he keeps them. You know, traded the one car he was driving to go get that car to bring it to me. And it was this beautiful blue with this cream interior. And it was such, it was, one of those, it was one of the most beautiful cars I've ever seen. But I was just, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to go out of his way to, to show me a car. You know, I thought it was very, very nice of him. It just says something about his character, in my opinion, you know. Uh, yeah. And you get these people who are kind of rich who kind of collect these cars and just to say they've collected them. But if there's uh, someone who kind of goes out, like he seems to just really enjoy it is what I'm getting at. Right. Well, like he, doesn't just, he, has a, he has a show yeah. now, right, where he drives around and interviews people in a car, right, one of his cars. So it's funny that, you know, all these years later, he's, he's, the car thing is still very much a part of his, his uh, DNA. 
But I just thought it was so nice of him to go out of his way to, to do that. He didn't, he didn't have to do that. Another thing that was really unique about him and that show is so these shows, these comedies, these half-hour sitcoms are shot live. And so usually they're shot on video. They, showed, they shot that on film. So you'd have four cameras film being shot. So it just it gave the quality of the show a much, much better quality. Cheers was the first show to do that. But uh, they followed suit. But they also have in the audience to keep the audience amused. They have a comedian who they call warms up the audience, right? Tells them jokes, yeah. keeps them laughing, so they're in a good mood. Well, and I've been to I've been to many tapings of shows, and that's what they do. Jerry did that on his show. He did so he's doing the show, but he's also the the audience warm up guy. Which just takes the takes the audience's enthusiasm to a whole different level, right? I mean, and it just makes it so much more personal that it's Jerry himself doing it, you know. There's certainly no argument that that what guy works hard. Yeah. Oh, and they also had a live band to keep the audience entertained, which I also never saw on another show. So they just really, really did it right, you know. Yeah. Oh, I th I think that guy just does life right. He just enjoys himself. And I, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him do, you know, stand up too. I saw him do a set in Vegas, and man, he was a, he was he's brilliant, man. He's brilliant. Nice. Uh, the other one, like Tales from the Crypt, another one of these shows, <laughs> which just to to get to do an episode of that. So how that, set up in your episode? how that happened? Which actually, uh, uh, Michael Deloise is in that one, bringing back the Deloises. Um, how. How I did that one was that was directed by uh, Bob Gale, who wrote Back to the Future. And so, for you know, he, he remembered me, I guess, and he asked me if I would do it. And I was like, sure. So, I mean, I would be happy to do a Tales of Grip, but it was great to actually have Bob Gale personally, you know, uh, reach out to me to do it. So that's how that's how that happened. And that was a pretty fun, ep pretty fun episode. Brilliant. Uh, and I just hope to God that you had a scene uh, with this next one I'm going to talk about. But this one's The Line of Duty, The Price of Vengeance, uh, with uh, Dean Stockwell in it, uh, the legend. Did you get any time with him? Uh, did I actually do any scenes with Dean? I certainly remember Dean being on the set. I think a couple, again, trying to remember back, right? Um, of course. Um, how, I, how I got... Uh, 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 I gotta think of the director's name. Oof. Uh, uh, it'll come to me in a minute. But how I got on that is I'd done uh, Dick Lowry. Dick Lowry, right? His 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 sister is is Junie Lowry, which I was trying to remember her name because I knew then I would remember his name. Junie Lowry is a you know big big casting director in L.A. and uh, one I respect a lot. I feel like she has you know a very good eye and. Uh, uh, so I had worked for him once before I had done a, a, a he was a big movie of the week director uh, in, in that time. And I'd worked for him on a thing called um, uh, American Harvest that we shot actually in a Canada because it was all about like guys working on wheat combines and things. But uh, so he wanted me to do this and his his sister was casting it and I had not worked for her before, but I had auditioned for her, auditioned for her a thousand times for NYPD Blue. Blue. Um, but I'd never been cast by her. And, and so I was out of town uh, and she was kind of ruffled that I wasn't coming in. And so I, you know, but he kept saying, no, you got to see this guy. You got to see this guy. So finally I, I came into audition 
and it was just him and her and you could see that she was kind of like who do you think you know who do you think you are at this point and then i did my thing and then she just became like the biggest fan and is is always brought me into her office and, and, and has gotten me jobs but she's tried to get me many jobs and uh she's a she's, she's a great she's great and dick dick's a really really good director really really good with camera and uh, what was interesting about that project was it was based on a true story about this detective that was trying to, to crack this case about this murder. And uh, it was this sort of crime group in L.A. And uh, to, the guy on, on a Halloween day dressed in a clown suit in, in a limousine and, and, and machine gunned down this cop to keep him from from you know, getting close to figuring out what they did. And this, the, his son saw him, this real de detective get killed in front of him. And th the mother and the son were on set, you know, and I played a bad guy, but oh. I still felt an incredible amount of uh, responsibility to do, to do the job right, because it was really based on, on this family's loss, you know? Well, and, and like, what does the responsibility feel like, especially when you're playing the bad guy, because you have to do honor to what happened, but like they're right there when you're, performing yeah they were they were there a lot they saw a lot of stuff and i i don't, I don't know if they saw that scene where he, they shot him down but i, I hope not because that would have been just too traumatic in my opinion but um it just it, when you do when you play somebody real like a memphis bell or in this case a story about real people you definitely feel a a, a, a big responsibility to just get it right you just want to make sure you do your best work that's you know that's that's what i feel when you're doing that, how do you balance like playing this real life character and getting into their headspace as much as you can and the part where you have to act and you have to kind of extrapolate? How do you balance those those out? Yeah, it's so there's sort of uh, two, 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 there's your yeah, acting is juggling. It's juggling, you know, it's juggling balls, right? There's a lot of things going on at the same time. Multitasking, I guess you could you could say. But there's sort of ultimately two things. There's this character that, yeah, you're, if you're doing well, you're thinking like he's thinking, right? That's where you try to get yourself to the point where you're thinking and reacting the way they would be, not the way you would be. Um, and if it's going well, that consumes most of your consciousness. But in the, I sort of call it, in, there's like sort of me witnessing it in the back, you know, sort of the back of my skull, sort of watching what's going on because I have to be there enough to be able to, know when it's my cue and know where I, I have to hit my mark, right? I have to be present to these things or there would be, I wouldn't even be making a movie, I guess, right? So, <laughs> so there's this part of me that's, I almost call it like when I'm at my best, there's, a, there's the me watching, witnessing this thing that I've, you know, that I'm creating. And, uh, and if it's going really well, the character will do something that surprises me watching, where the me watching goes, wow that was a really interesting choice you just made a reaction you just had i would i would have never intellectually thought to do that that's when i know i'm at my best oh i love that uh the the split personality that you have to kind of uh put your head into at times yeah it's it's like i say it's more like if i'm doing the character right, it's more like 90 character 95 character five percent act me watching going okay yeah you have to go to this mark over here so make sure you get over there you know and that's about it. If it's going really well, that's that's what's happening. Uh, I want to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, one of my favorite sitcoms of modern time, which I think was uh, crime. It only ran for, I believe, four seasons, if I remember remembering correctly. And that's My Name is Earl, which you popped up as as Lloyd in. 
Yeah, uh, I I really really liked that show as well, and I yeah I think I could have gone on much longer. Um, I just remember that when I saw the pilot episode, I was just like, this is such a cool concept for a, a such a cool message of karma and, and and you know completing things that need to be completed. They just you know they don't talk about like stuff like that interesting in a, in a sitcom, you know. So I really loved that premise of of this guy yeah. having to sort of make amends, you know. So I, I auditioned for that show for four seasons i went back went and i I really just wanted to get on that because i really really liked it and then ironically in the fourth season i guess it must have been the fourth season um i got that role which was by far the best role i had auditioned for like by far so i was i was really uh, glad to get to do it and uh what i felt that role you know I've played, you know, the nerd, like, in a, you know, can't buy me love. And I've played plenty of crazies and other things, but rarely have I been able to, I've never had done both in a project before. So this guy starts out as this, you know, nerdy, you know, doughy eyed person and then turns into this bitter, you know, curmudgeon for being burned by this car thing, you know? Um, so I really got to do a nice big range in that role and that, kind of everything I can do or not everything I can do, but a lot of what I can do all in one episode. And the other thing that was very cool was that my son was a big fan of, of the two leads, Jason and, and um, shit, I can't the other guy's name. He's a great guy. Uh, oh, um, Ethan, uh, Ethan Supley. Ethan, man, Ethan's really cool, dude. I've, uh, I like him a lot. Uh, we, uh, my son went to high school, not that far from where we were shooting. So I was able to go grab him after, after class and, run him to set and uh he was just tickled to meet these guys and uh that's you know it's hard to impress a teenager you know so oh your son must be a big fan of uh, mall rats with the two of them in mall rats and also uh, uh what was that uh, that texas uh football movie that ethan was in the first thing anybody ever saw ethan and he was uh oh no where of that one uh something blues something blues harvard please uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, but but he knew him from other things, you know, and so but he also liked the series. So but but yeah, he, he was a fan of them for more than for, he, for more than one thing. And he was just he just couldn't stop laughing when he came on the set meeting. And he just kept looking at them and cracking up. And it was just it was just really funny to see him have such a great reaction. So, like I said, it's hard to impress a teenager. So whenever I get a, get a chance to, I, I tried to tried to make the best of it. One thing which uh, we mentioned before, Hell's, Ki- Hell's Kitty, which uh, just fantastic title and premise for a film, if you ask me. I love the fact that horror can do so many uh, weird and wonderful things and go to so many weird premises. Yes. Uh, with all the different kind of work in horror amongst other genres that you've done, what's the kind of weirdest thing that you've had to do? <laughs> in horror? The weirdest thing I've ever had to do in horror? Is that the question? Uh, you can go anywhere, but like horror seems like one which would lend itself. That's true. Um, hmm. Nothing's popping in my head right now. I'm, let's go on to the next thing. I'm sure something will come to me. Let's see if I come up with a good idea. Because I, you know, weirdest thing I've ever had to do. That's a good question. I don't know. Okay, we'll turn back to that one. But uh, one thing which we have to get onto, of course, is a new movie, Queen Bees. Uh, tell us a bit about it and the fantastic cast. This uh, 
is just one of these wonderful, like we've seen it happen with a lot of um, male casts, I feel like, but this is a female cast in a retirement home uh, learning to grow grow old disgracefully. But uh, tell us a bit about it in your own words. Sir. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I just do a cameo in it, but I was totally pleased to see that that made the trailer um, which was really was a surprise. It's nice to know that's one of the funnier bits in the movie, as, as, as you say. But yeah, I had this, I was a pro, uh, Michael Lembeck, the director, I'd, I'd done a comedy class with him and his sister Helene for years called um, the Harvey Lembeck Comedy Workshop. Their father taught it in the 60s and 70s and even early 80s, and they've carried it on. But Michael's directed many sitcoms and many, tele, many movies. Uh, but when I, you know, when I was, realized I was going to have the chance to work with Ellen Bernstein and Margaret or divine and Jane Curtin. I was like, I'm in, <laughs> you know, so yeah. that was what that was all about was to, and, and what was great was my character uh, before he steals the purse in this cop in this coffee house, they have this sort of dialogue scene before that's where my character is watching him. So I just got to get to watch these four actresses work all day before it was sort of my turn to do my thing. And that was just a great experience because they all have their special, you know, their special gifts, you know, like Jane Curtin, you know, her comedic timing, you know, is just, oh. it is what it is. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's unmistakably, it's just, you're like, ah, that's what comedic timing is. I wish I had that like that, you know, but you're watching Ellen Bernstein. She's a, she's a total method New York actress. You see her, you know, conjuring up something she needs to, you know, see her character has to start the scene laughing. You'll see her find something in her to make her laugh before she starts the scene. You know, you see their different ways of methods of working. Uh, it was very, very interesting. Uh, so you, you've been, as I say, in over 130 productions, uh, 134 as an actor. Uh, what do you owe kind of uh, working so much and how do you keep up that amazing work ethic to kind of go from production to production? First, I'll go back to answering your question. The weirdest thing I had to do came to me now. So yeah, I, did a, I did, um, I did a, a video game called L.A. Noir, which was a pretty cool yeah. game set like L.A. 1940s, which my son actually also loved that. So that was cool that I got to do something. That was a bizarre experience. And you had to do, you know, be in those green, all, all green suits with the bubbles all around you, you know, <laughs> the bubble suits they're called. <laughs> Because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a video game, right? See, so first you do that, which is weird. And then before you start and when you end, you have to do like what's called a T. You have to put your arms out and then you have to be in the shape of a T. So you have to start the scene in a T. And then when you end, you have to, they always, they always yell at me, go back to your T, T, T. I'm like, because I'd always forget. So it's like, I'm not thinking about being, a, you know, being in this position of a T at the end. I'm trying to act. Um, <laughs> then, so, so you do all that and then Two months later, we came back because that's all for the body movements of the scene, basically, even though you're doing all the dialogue. Then you, we came back and we go into this all white room with like literally 50 cameras all around you, 360 degrees, and they're just shooting your head. And you would have to start each thing making all these facial expressions. Smile, frown, look mad. And then you would do each line you had one by one, just one line at a time. And, and beyond that, that was strange, was you had to go get your hair basically pressed into like a helmet. Like, like they'd spray it and flatten it and spray it and flatten it so that no light was coming through because they were going to put your head on your body like a green screen thing. You get what I'm saying? It was the first, it was the first uh, video game to actually have facial rest recognition. 
Wow. It was weird. It was a weird, weird way to do something, but boy, did it come out good. But boy, did it come out good. It looked fantastic. <laughs> Uh, I just love any project where you get the direction, tea, tea, go back into your tea. Yes. And then just to have to, before you're doing one line, one line, it's hard to get in a flow of anything. You're doing one line. And before that, every time you'd have to make weird, all your facial recognitions, all, all your expressions that you could conjure up. I mean, it was strange, but they had never done anything like that before. It took them five years, I think, or three, three to four years to make that project. Wow. So and that the, was the crazy. That was the craziest thing I think I've ever done. So back to you. So you know, the question of longevity, right? I think. Yes, please. Question. Well, I would say a couple of things. One, I would say, you know, as a character actor, I, you know, I think you can you can continue to be you know, as long as you have, if you have an interesting face. Uh, I think you can continue to work, right? I think you continue to grow old and still look interesting as it were. So I, I have that going for me, I believe. Um, number two is that, um, you know, a lot of the people that were in my acting class when I was young, once they started working, they stopped studying. And I think that was their critical error. Um, I never did. I stayed in the first class I was in. I stayed in for a decade, that class we were in. Even when I, was, when I, when I wasn't working, I was always in that class. And then after that, I continue to take to study other classes. Like that's why I say I know all the methods because I've studied Meisner, I've studied uh, uh, Stanislavski. You know, I've I've always kept myself in a class. And if I wasn't in a class, I taught for a number of years. And then in the end, I was doing that Harvey Lembeck comedy workshop, which was which was honestly very difficult. It was improv, situational improv, not what I'm used to. Creating characters very fast. I'd fall on my face in there a lot. And for an actor who's as established as I am, that was humiliating, but that's why you go back, right? If you're not willing to fall on your face, if you're not willing to grow, if you're not willing to continue to get better, I think, you know, you're, you're getting stagnant. So I think that my willingness to have kept working at the craft that whole time, I think is, is the other aspect of the longevity. And then the third thing I would say is inability to, look at who are you now what do you look like now and what is the market for your age demographic now and and right. and figuring out how to how to work within that and an example of that would be when i was um after my teen you know cinema run of the 80s what i was faced with as an actor was there was no 20 something roles at that time there is now but there wasn't then in the in the early 90s there just really wasn't you were either you were either like in college or you were 30 something. Matter of fact, there was a show at that time called 30 something. Right. So um, I had to look myself in the mirror and go, what am I going to do? Like, I don't look 30. How am I going to make this work? And I was like, well, what can you do? That's roughly that age. I was like, bad guys. I can pull off bad guys. So I let, grew my hair out long, combed it back, grew a goatee. And I could kind of start to edge to that 30 year old or late twenties. And I just focused on I'm going to play bad guys. And, and for, for the decade of the 90s, that's what I did. If you look at all, a lot of TV credits and I just played Mad Dogs, you know, and then I felt like that had run its course. And I was looking like long haired guys it was like all that was available, sort of like crackheads. I'm like, that's not what I want to do. So I knew my team wouldn't go for it because that was the easy, low hanging fruit playing bad guys. I just shaved all my hair off. They didn't ask them. I shaved my head. <laughs> took pictures, came back, and they were like 
flipped out. They didn't want to hear it. And they were, I said, well, I'm not doing bad guys. I'm done. I'm burned out on it. I can do comedy. Look at my you know previous, you know, look at my eighties. And they, they kept sending me bad guys and I kept saying no. I sat out for like a year and I went in for an audition for a champagne movie called Sam, I am Sam. And I didn't get that. And they said, the reason I didn't was because I was too recognizable for his, his friends, but they really liked this new look with the short hair. They were the ones that called me in for Sweet, Al- Sweet Home Alabama for the sheriff. Not my, my managers wouldn't have submitted me. Right. My agents was, they brought me in and I got the job. And of course, that changed people's perceptions again because now this was a big theatrical release comedy that did very well. I think at the time it was the number one grossing uh, February film, you know. Uh, so that was a big boost in my career. And my management and agents were still not getting it. So I had to let them go, you know, and got people who under, could see where I was now, not where I was, you know, 10 years ago. And you have to keep doing that. You have to keep reinventing yourself. You know, where where am I now and what are the roles available now? And what can I do in those roles that are available now? And you guys, you got to figure it out. And it's so smart as well, because there's so many um, actors who curse the darkness have been typecast. Uh, but you lit the candle of putting yourself into a new space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a yeah. It's all how you look at it, right? I mean, we're all we're all facing typecasting. I think you know the bigger star you are, in some ways, the more typecasting. They're like, well, this is the type of movie you're in that makes movies. These this is the type of movie we we will pay you to do, you know. So we we all struggle with that as actors, but at times you can definitely see what your market is, and you need to know your market. And if that's a a form of typecasting, then maybe it is. But you can still there's still lots of you know playing having played bad guys for that time. I mean, they, they, it wasn't just the same guy every time, you know, like one of the, I mean, TV is guest stars have offered me some of the most challenging roles I've ever done. One of, one of the ones in the nineties that really stood out was I did a episode of diagnosis murder. Yes. Uh, and I played a character who was paralyzed on one side, pretending to have a cerebral palsy on the other. And uh, he, he'd been, this guy who ended up being becoming a pro basketball player, this he he'd hurt this guy to the point where he was paralyzed. So he felt he cost him his basketball career, and so he he pretends to he works there as the as the lackey on the team, and he poisons him. And you know he comes out of that in the inner you know the interview at the end, the big interview always in these 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 court dramas. You know he comes out of the the faking of the cerebral palsy and you know admits what he had done. And it was a I had a week to prepare that less than a week. And um, that's, you know, this was pre-internet. You couldn't even see what, you know, I had to, you know, remember what I could, what I felt cerebral palsy was and then did research on it, but I couldn't look at it. Um, but to, to pull something like that, that off, you know, I was, I was proud of my ability as an actor to do that. I feel when you have auditions like that, you, you know, you separate the men from the boys, as it were, you know, who has the chops and who doesn't, you know. And, and I've got to give you the credit for kind of all that research uh, gone into that kind of tricky of kind of setups because, man, was diagnosis murder uh, convoluted when it wants to be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was also warned as I'm trying to prepare for my big scene that, you know, Dick Van Dyke would be telling jokes and singing show tunes and not, you know, really be respectful of that process. And I was thankful somebody gave me that warning because he in fact did do all of that and it was very distracting. And when I got to yell in his face, I enjoyed every minute of it. (laughs) It's not going to get a better out than that. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, sir. Very good. Thank you. Enjoyed it.
um uh, as we're going out on the radio so this goes first of all out live as it is now and then it goes on our radio show a bit later on in the week usually i would ask my guest uh, to pick a track they want to hear on the radio but considering you have a new album out which one of your tracks should we play wow i think the, the i would say let's do the one from the ripple street band would you it's a very heavy song and it's an interesting topic i, I like it let's let's go with that so the ripple street band yeah my, my which i sing in this so i sing in that band so if you don't like that, if you that's just too heavy, uh, the other song would be the one from my Acoustic Games record called There Was a Time. So, go look. Are you oh, going with both? I've got, I've got two hours on the radio to fill up. We're going for a double play. Here's over to a double bill of Courtney Gaines. was there was a time by Courtney Gaines and before that you heard my interview with Courtney Gaines uh, apologies for that uh, little sting of <laughs> something you heard in the background uh, basically I spoke earlier about this being Canada Day and we sort of planned or I planned to already do a, um, a special on Canada Day for the Dr. Scree show as we did last year now there has been uh, all this kind of talk and all these things come to like light um, about the indigenous population and mass graves of children being found. And I, you know, like I said earlier, I, I'm just trying my, to work my way through that as best as I can. And what do we celebrate and what do we try to steer away from at a time like this? Obviously, we try and be led by the voices of the communities affected. Now, there is a, a bit of poetry which has been made and the Bare Ladies, the band which I played a double bill of earlier, one of my favourite bands of all time, they've uh, made a post with a video. Um, I'll read read the blurb which they put and then I'll, I'll play this for you. Hopefully it'll come out okay. I'm playing this from my phone, I must admit, because I didn't have this set up. Literally got posted while that interview with Courtney Gaines was going out. So this from the Bare Ladies shared today. On this July the 1st, we stand in solidarity with the indigenous community. It will be a day of reflection and mourning. As a nation, we must acknowledge the hard truths of our shared history as we build a path to a better future. Chief Stacy Lafomi, apologies for my pronunciation, of the Mississauga of the Credit First Nation. Again, I apologize for butchering these names and it is just my lack of being able to pronounce them composed this heartfelt poem on May the 28th, 2021. His words say so much. It has been set to music by Kevin Hearn from the Bare Ladies, past guest on the show, and Josh Finlayson. Please take a quiet moment to listen, and on July the 1st, please consider wearing or displaying the colour orange in solidarity. For more information, or to get involved, please visit downwenjack.ca that's d o w n i e w e n j a c k . c a and uh, this the poem uh, said some music i sit here crying 
I don't know why. I didn't know the children. I didn't know the parents. But I knew their spirit. I knew their love. I know their loss. I know their potential. And I am overwhelmed by the pain and the hurt. The pain of the families and friends. The pain of an entire people. Unable to protect them. To help them. To comfort them. To love them. I did not know them. But the pain is so real. So personal. I felt it in my core. My heart. My spirit. I sit here crying and I'm not ashamed. I will cry for them and the many others like them. I will cry for you. I will cry for me. I'll cry for what, I'll cry for what could have been. Then I will calm myself. Smudge myself. Offer prayers. And know they are no longer in pain. No longer do they hurt. They are at peace. In time, I will tell a story. I will educate society. So their memory is not lost to this world. And when I am asked, what does reconciliation mean to me? I will say, I want their lives back. I want them to live, to soar. I want to hear their laughter, see their smiles. Give me that, and I'll grant you reconciliation. I thought it was absolutely beautiful and sums up a feeling for a lot of people at the moment. Um, I wish I could say I planned it this way, but uh, the next track I've got lined up is is one by Celine Dion. I'm not a particular fan of hers usually. Um, I don't know why I had that, but there was a song which she did for the Deadpool, soon, Deadpool 2 soundtrack, and it was Ashes, and it's all about beauty coming out of Ashes, and uh, it seems kind of fitting at this moment to play that, so... Uh, I'm going to play this, uh, you listen to the Live, the Dog Squeeze show, and um, again, our thoughts go out to the Indigenous community of Canada on this uh, Canada Day. 
What's left to say? These prayers aren't working anymore. That was Avril Lavigne, and I'm with you. So, guys, a um, bit of a different kind of tone to the show than I was expecting really tonight, but uh, I think it's really important to recognise these things, certainly when they come to your attention. And something else which is sort of, I suppose, not come to my attention this week, but certainly has been on my mind this week. As many of you will know, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. It uh, happened since I was a child. I grew up watching it. Uh, I used to watch it with my mum and one of my brothers. Um, so I was, I've had a life, lifelong uh, love of the show. Now recently, um, of course, we've had Jodie Whittaker in the role, which I was very here to, very glad to hear cast. But maybe like uh, her episodes haven't been to my taste. However, this week, uh, as... Jodie is heavily rumoured, at the very least, to be stepping down as the titular Time Lord, which is very fun to say. Rumours start abounding of who might replace her. And this week there was a big rumour about Ollie Alexander, the lead singer of Years and Years, and also the actor from It's a Sin, a wonderful drama by Russell T Davies. And uh, the amount of comments I read, which led with... Oh, I'm sick and tired of all this PC nonsense. I'm sick and tired of them doing diversity picks and just picking people for this, that and the other. And you know what? I I have no problem. If you don't like him as an actor, you saying so. Or you don't want him to be playing the Doctor, great. Present an argument. The argument can't start and end, though, with I don't like it because he's gay. Because if you're saying you don't like a diverse pick because the last uh, the current Doctor's a woman and the next one would be a gay actor, then that speaks volumes. I'm sorry, that is just saying I don't like gay people being able to progress. I don't like anyone who isn't a stri- straight, white, cis male progressing or being able to play the Doctor. And uh, the thing is, he's a time lord. He's from another planet. He's able to change his appearance, yet him going, uh, turning into a woman or someone who isn't uh, straight in sexuality, that kind of points um, towards your small-mindedness, really. Oh, but he's always been a man. Yeah, for for 12 bodies, um, but there's no reason why bodies subsequent to that cannot be all female, or can't be female for a while, or can't be gay, or can't be any number of other things. And it just kind of baked my noodle a little bit, this reaction. Uh, and I, I must admit, not not in this kind of way. However, I have been known to say, because I, I saw um, Ollie Alexander in It's a Sin, and he was amazing, so good in that role. But I saw nothing in that role which pointed towards uh, him playing the Doctor. There was nothing which I saw from the performance which pointed towards that character. And that's the only thing I've seen him on. So judge just solely on that, I can't see him as the Doctor at the moment. doesn't mean I couldn't. Couldn't be wrong if you played it. Uh, however, I find myself leading sometimes by saying it's like, uh, and it's not because he's gay, and it's not, but the fact that I'm saying this is kind of part of the problem, and I need to solve that within myself. Because if you lead by mentioning someone's sexuality, you're kind of bringing it up, even with the best of intentions. Um, whereas we should be saying, I think he would be a good actor for this role because I think he wouldn't be good 
for this role because and it's fine to say you don't think he would be good but don't let his sexuality be the lead driver of that uh, we're talking about injustices a bit tonight on the show and sorry for two rants in one show but uh sometimes it's called for and uh surely justice would be to judge someone based on their acting abilities for an acting role and not who they fuck let me put it that way Anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening. Uh, sorry for some um, issues earlier on during one of the songs. Uh, we had a little bit of a cutout uh, in the internet here at Squee Towers. Can't be helped. Uh, but on the re- repeat, hopefully it's all been repaired and I'll have sent through a clean copy to Al, our beloved station manager. But thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much to Courtney Gaines. Thank you very much to the nation of Canada for hopefully moving forward more positively with all your peoples. And uh, thank you very much for you to lis- for listening. Remember, guys, in a world where you can be absolutely anything, more than ever, it's important to remember to be kind. I'm a dog squee. That was my show. I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone, because I hate someone, or because because I want to blame someone. It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right, because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all, but it's the best I can do. Why not? Just at the end. Just be kind.